How to Die Our little life is rounded with a sleep. Shakespeare, The Tempest, 1611 Sadly, life does not stretch out into infinity for us. Life is limited. This is simultaneously a colossally obvious and unprofound remark, but also one which has a certain novelty every time we think about it, given the fact that we often don't really care to think about it. But it must and should be thought. Acknowledging how short life is and that one day we will all be cold is one of the keys to living this time-constrained existence of ours. So, if we have to die, and we do, then what is the best kind of death? John Keats had an answer for this question. In one of his most famous poems, The Ode to a Nightingale, 1819, that great meditation on the symbolic meaning of a nightingale heard one evening when he sat in the garden of his friend Charles Armitage Brown's residence in Hampstead, Keats declares that now, more than ever, it seems rich to die. The familiarity of this poem and this line should not blind us to the singularity of what it says, for this statement is more than just an oxymoronic paradox. How can the prospect of death be rich. It reflects an impulse within the poet, which is close to what the Freudians call thanatus, the death instinct, and one with which Keats, or at least the version of himself which he presents in the poem, was very familiar. Earlier in the same poem, he declares that, for many a time, I have been half in love with easeful death. Why does Keats feel this way? Why does he feel it appropriate to attach such positive adjectives, rich and easeful, to a noun, death, which generally prompts rather darker thoughts? The answer lies in the fact that what the poet aspires to here is a particular sort of death, an enviable demise inasmuch as it avoids the agonies of the many partings from this world, to cease in Keats's beautiful phrase, upon the midnight without pain. Dying at the time of sleep and without pain, if one has to go then, sounds like the way to do it. Surely we can ask no more of our passing. It should be pointed out that this notion of the good, or at least welcome death, is far from a glib sentiment in the poet's work. It was hard-won knowledge born out of hard-won experience for John Keats. The poet, a medical man, was used to seeing painful death in the wards of Guy's Hospital where he had trained. Keats gave up his medical career after qualifying as an apothecary in 1815. Even closer to home, Keats had endured the death of his brother Tom of tuberculosis at the age of 19 in December 1818, only five months before he composed the Ode to a Nightingale on that spring evening in Hampstead. Life, Keats knew, was a place where youth grows spectre thin and dies. This is a sad fact. As Keats's poetical predecessor, William Blake, put it, within the loveliest rose, there can be an invisible worm, the sick rose, 1794, which slowly and relentlessly consumes from within, bringing sickness to the healthy, death to the unwilling. Learning how to die is a huge topic for a poet not long past 20, and it is testimony to the wisdom which John Keats achieved in his short life, 
as well as to his precocity in that he could write about death in such a powerful and insightful way at such an age. Keats knew when his own diagnosis of tuberculosis was confirmed at the age of 24, that it was likely that he would soon be tested by a death come early. This was no Nietzschean Ubermensch, just a young man who, faced with the proximity of death, knew that the greatest hope we can have is to face death as calmly as we can bear, pain and passion spent. And he hoped, as we should, to cease upon the midnight without pain. The wrath of Keats's longing hovers over us still. The thing about life is that we are all on the inside of it, so it is natural to try to work out what it means, or at least to speculate about what it means, whether in the form of dinner table conversation, personal meditation, or indeed through the media of poetry and philosophy. And the same goes for death, which is similarly shared by all. Facing and assimilating death as best as we can makes for a happier life, and the acceptance of death makes for a better life. In our day-to-day -day life, we should principally concentrate on life, not the absence of life, but the subject of death, life's endlessly, if morbidly, fascinating twin, should not always be avoided. Let death be an enhancer, deepening the appreciation of life and sweetening the taste of its fruits. We prepare carefully for most of life's major events, from birth and schooling to a new job or a new house. So contemplating and preparing for a death, however remote it currently seems, actually serves to less the chance of it being a painful or a lonely one. Thinking and talking about death does not hasten our demise, and nor does taciturnity about the subject delay its arrival for one minute. What death looks like, of course, depends upon from where you look at it. Some of us with a religious cast of mind, or with convinced ethical or philosophical convictions, think that we know life's meaning. Those with spiritual beliefs feel that they understand the meaning of death and are sure of the soul's destination. Take, for instance, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who in his poem on his baptismal birthday, 1832, wrote as one who is God's child in Christ adopted. As in Christ I live, says Coleridge, it is obvious that I fear not death. The Christian's life is eternal, and Coleridge has a death paradox of his own to match Keats's. To end my life, that can but end its woe. Is that a deathbed where a Christian lies? Yes, but not his. Tis death itself there dies. Death dies. The Christian does not. We should not forget the importance of Christianity and Romanticism, notably that of Coleridge, even if we do not share it. The problem with death is not the actuality of death, which is unknowable in any absolutely certain sense, but the fear of it, as Coleridge well knew. For those without Coleridge's theistic consolations, for the non-religious, for the skeptic, for the agnostic, the most persuasive thinker about death among the romantic poets and essayists is the philosopher-critic William Hazlitt. On the fear of death, one of the essays in the author's table talk, Essays on Men and Manners, 1822, is one of the finest romantic meditations on death. 
The epigraph to this chapter, Prospero's comforting words from the Tempest, are also used to open Hazlitt's essay and strongly influence it. Our lives are bounded before and after by a sleep of unknowing. Perhaps the best cure for the fear of death, he writes, is to reflect that life has a beginning as well as an end. There was a time when we were not. This gives us no concern. Why, then, should it trouble us that a time will come when we shall cease to be? As Hazlitt says, we have all slept our thousands of centuries. Millions would be a more appropriate word without wanting to be waked up. So unless we have the hope or the dread of an afterlife, it is quite reasonable to ask why we should worry about sleeping thousands of centuries more. We can still hear William Hazlitt, but he can't hear us, and he certainly doesn't want to be waked up. To die, argues Hazlitt, is only to be as we were before we were born. Yet no one feels any remorse or regret or repugnance in contemplating this last idea. Hazlitt makes the sobering point that people walk along the streets in the day after our deaths just as they did before, and the crowd is not diminished. But, to Hazlitt, our vacancy within death also has its consolations. The sad heart, he points out, is no longer sad. In death, in words which anticipate Coleridge's ten years later, writes Hazlitt, sorrow is dead. Contemplating his demise, Hazlitt has only two wishes. I should like to leave some sterling work behind me, he writes, and I should like to have some friendly hand consign me to the grave. On these conditions, he continues, I am ready, if not willing, to depart. This longing for monumentality, of leaving something behind, is echoed by William Wordsworth in Sonnet 34, that great meditation of mortality which appeared in the River Duddon, a series of sonnets, 1820. Rivers like the Duddon endure, still glides the stream and shall forever glide. But individual human life, no matter how exalted, does not. We men who in our morn of youth defied the elements must vanish. Be it so, concludes Wordsworth, ending his poem with this magnificent declaration. Enough. If something from our hands have power to live and act and serve the future hour, and if, as toward the silent tomb we go through love, through hope, and face transcendent dower, we feel that we are greater than we know. What endures of us, what survives, whether sterling work, or the love of our children, or the love and memory of our friends, is, has, to be, enough. Ode to a Nightingale by John Keats My heart aches, and a drowsy numbness pains my sense, as though of hemlock I had drunk, or emptied some dull opiate to the drains one minute past, and Lethe woods had sunk. Tis not through envy of thy happy lot, but being too happy in thine happiness, that thou, light-winged dryad of the trees, in some melodious plot of beechen green and shadows numberless, singest of summer in full-throated ease. Oh, for a draught of vintage that hath been cooled a long age in the deep delved earth, 
tasting of flora and the country green, dance and Provencal song and sunburnt mirth. Oh, for a beaker full of the warm south, full of the true, the blushful hippocrene, with beaded bubbles winking at the brim and purple-stained mouth, that I might drink and leave the world unseen and with thee fade away into the forest dim. Fade far away, dissolve, and quite forget what thou among the leaves hast never known, the weariness, the fever, and the fret here where men sit and hear each other groan, where palsy shakes a few sad last grey hairs, where youth grows pale and spectre thin and dies, where but to think is to be full of sorrow and leaden-eyed despairs, where beauty cannot keep her lustrous eyes or new love pine at them beyond tomorrow. Away, away, for I will fly to thee, not charioted by Bacchus and his pards, but on the viewless wings of poesy, though the dull brain perplexes and retards. Already with thee, tender is the night, and haply the queen moon is on her throne, clustered around by all her starry fays. But here there is no light, save what from heaven is with the breezes blown, through verdurous glooms and winding mossy ways. I cannot see what flowers are at my feet, nor what soft incense hangs upon the boughs, but in embalmed darkness guess each sweet wherewith the seasonable month endows the grass, the thicket, and the fruit-tree wild, white hawthorn and the pastoral eglantine, fast-fading violets covered up in leaves, and mid-May's eldest child, the coming musk-rose, full of dewy wine, the murmurous haunt of flies on summer eaves. Darkling I listen, and for many a time I have been half in love with easeful death, called him soft names in many a mused rhyme, to take into the air my quiet breath. Now more than ever seems it rich to die, to cease upon the midnight with no pain, while thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such an ecstasy. Still wouldst thou sing, and I have ears in vain, to thy high requiem become a sod. Thou wast not born for death, immortal bird. No hungry generations tread thee down. The voice I hear this passing night was heard in ancient days by emperor and clown, perhaps the selfsame song that found a path through the sad heart of Ruth, when, sick for home, she stood in tears amid the alien corn, the same that oft-times hath charmed magic casements opening on the foam of perilous seas in fairy lands forlorn. Forlorn! The very word is like a bell to toll me back from thee to my soul's self. Adieu, 
the fancy cannot cheat so well as she is famed to do, deceiving elf. Adieu, adieu. Thy plaintive anthem fades past the near meadows, over the still stream, up the hillside, and now it is buried deep in the next valley glades. Was it a vision or a waking dream? Fled is that music. Do I wake or sleep? <laughs>